Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode in the Practical CMO. Today, we're going to take on a topic that is often not dealt with because it seems like it's always a challenge. And the title of today's program is Pricing with Daring Caution. I know that's a little bit of an intriguing title, but that's the point of a good title, I think. But what is it about pricing that appears daunting? Is it that sometimes it seems like a strange mix of art and science? which is itself intimidating? Or is it a challenge because we lack the data from customers and competitors required to make high confidence decisions? Or potentially is it because we don't have the courage to match our pricing with the value that we provide? Or is it because we fear making a decision which may have unfortunate, unforeseen negative consequences on our business? You know, sometimes you might think an effective pricing strategy may appear like the holy grail. But businesses need competitive pricing, which matches their value proposition and is effective in their core markets. Now, today, I'm really, really happy to have a colleague, Bob Sherlock, join me. I would call Bob one of the few pricing gurus that I've worked with in, you know, 25 plus years of business. When Bob joined Chief Outsiders several years ago, What I was most excited about was that he unashamedly, I will point out that word unashamedly, was a pricing guru and champion of value-based pricing. Now, I have to admit, in all these years of doing business, I've only met two other people who are willing to sort of claim that kind of expertise and be able to demonstrate it with true knowledge and market experience. These people are few and far between, so I think you're going to get a lot out of Bob's sharing of his knowledge with us in today's program. So we're going to jump into the impacts of pricing strategy and how that can have a positive impact on your business. So welcome, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be with you. Would you mind sharing just a little bit of a background, a kind of a profile? I mean, you've done so many things along the way, but this is one, I think, within Chief Outsiders that you're really known for. You know, how did you develop this form of expertise? Well, the work that I have done in pricing and in value messaging and value development grew out of my years managing marketing and a sales force at GE and Wix, another public company. And then in consulting with a broad range of companies from small ones to large, you know, it's a Warren Buffett quote that I find really, really useful. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. So I work on both sides of that coin, helping companies to find their hidden value, which is value that they're probably even not aware of or taking for granted or not realizing, you know, the true value to the customer. So I help them find their hidden value, find ways to create more value, and also help them to message so that prospects and customers will perceive the value. And then finally, pricing to get paid for that value. So That's my corporate background. And then, you know, consulting and workshop and teamwork sort of all came together. Started to spend some time really thinking deeply about price and value. And it's all been reinforcing and had a blast doing it. Yeah. Among marketing professionals, pricing is probably the least popular of what we used to call the four P's of marketing, right? right? Today, you could say, well, four P's are long gone. You know, they're six P's or seven P's of marketing. I mean, the alliteration is what people tend to recall from their college marketing coursework. But why is pricing so daunting for many companies? Well, I think part of it you touched on earlier, it's the unknowns. Now, it's somewhat easier. There are some companies that sell standardized products online. 
And they can often easily find out the range of prices that their competitors are charging, and they've got more price visibility. So maybe it's a little bit easier in that world. But so many other companies and many of the ones that we work with, it's not true that they have visibility to, you know, quote, a market price especially if these companies are customizing their products and services, they may not really know what price they should offer to sell for. And then it's just natural to worry about not getting a customer or they're not getting the next order if they're priced too high. Mm -hmm. It seems like one challenge right off the bat we can identify is sort of poor insights into the market, into their competitors, perhaps even into the way that their own products or services are being perceived and valued by, you know, their target customers or target clients. That's absolutely right. I mean, almost every company is very aware of their costs and their need to generate a margin over those costs, but that's not the whole equation at all. You know, pricing lives in the company's ecosystem. You know, they really have to think about factors like you said of, you know, what's the nature of their transactions, you know, how much value they're adding for their customers. There's a lot to it. But the good news is that there's a set of logical questions that companies can ask themselves. There are some very simple frameworks that, as I've worked with companies and made these frameworks available, just help them develop pricing strategies and reaching pricing decisions that are just much better informed and give them a lot more confidence in their pricing. Now, you talked about the challenges that some business would have where their products are more custom. Mm -hmm. I think some of the other challenges are often that, you know, they have a unique product and there aren't really other reference products. You know, services can often be relatively undefined. And so sort of putting a value on a service can be hard to attach. But do you think the approaches, the frameworks that you use fit across a whole variety of situations. I mean, isn't that sometimes the essence of a strategy versus a tactical pricing approach? The specifics are gonna vary according to the company's price environment and the nature of what they're selling. You know, a new to the world, highly valuable solution should have a very different pricing strategy than a mature product or service that's been around a long time. There's lots of competitors on it. Having said that, there's a couple of things that apply across the board. The first is what I call the power of price. Each company that I've worked with within 18 to 24 months has been able to generate one full gross margin point. So if they were at 20%, then they could get to 21 or 22%. And that extra one or 2%, it drops straight to the bottom line because there's not cost of goods sold associated with it. Price is the way that people can grow top line and bottom line at the same time. And that's true across any company. And I'll talk a little bit later when I suggest resources for people. There's a very brief little article that I wrote that will allow a company to take a look at what difference to their earnings a 1% price yield would mean for them. And it's very eye-opening for a lot of companies. It can really boost their profits. And then there is one framework that I've used that I think will prove useful to any company. And maybe I can elaborate on that a little bit as we get further into the program. Yeah, sure. You've made the comment that, you know, for every one company that's priced too high, there are 10 that are undervaluing, they're in the marketplace, right? I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement to make. It's sort of a natural thing, I guess. I know somebody that is a great do-it-yourselfer. 
I mean, you know, we'll, we'll do all kinds of things, but there's one area of DIY that this guy won't touch. And the reason was when he was a little boy, he was a very curious kid, you know, great mind for science and wondered what would happen if he stuck a metal kitchen utensil into the electric outlet. Well, fortunately, after he did, the shock sort of just blew him back off of it. And he wound up, you know, on his butt crying. But ever since he's had this, you know, more than healthy respect for electricity. So even though this guy will tackle plumbing, carpentry, you name it, electricity is like never. He's he's not going to so much as turn the circuit breaker back on. Well, we all can have experiences like that when we're overpriced. Like if we lose an order, you know, or we lose a customer because we were overpriced, that sort of sticks in memory. And we can, you know, just then be gun shy and not be daring enough in what we do with our pricing. And and especially if we're not thinking very consciously in our pricing strategies and pricing decisions about the value that we create, then we can get really, really hesitant to get paid for the value that our companies are creating. You know, and you and I work with a lot of businesses that are private equity owned or have private equity investment. And it seems to me that the two audiences that are the most bullish around pricing are boards and private equity companies, right? And they'll go, well, come on, when was the last time you had a price increase, right? Just raise your prices 3%. I mean, come on, you can do it, right? And it's almost like they have to cajole company management sometimes into taking, I don't know if they have the strategy behind it. They just know that pricing is supports what you said earlier, right? It's a great way to drop instant dollars to the bottom line. It is. And they're bringing outside perspective that says, look, you're probably underpricing. This is radio. But if we can picture this cartoon, picture a cliff and that, you know, if you price too high, you're going to go off the edge and not get the order or something like that. You know, the company and particularly the sales organization tends to think that they're like right on the edge of the cliff, if not, you know, out in thin air already. But in fact, they might be six feet back and they've got some distance to go. Mm-hmm. And the outside perspective can help them see, all right, let's push that limit a little bit. And in the framework that I talk about a little bit, I don't advocate that people take risks that they don't have to take. You can start doing selective, careful moves to start seeing you know, where the price value equation is so that you get minimal risk, but you get all the upside of selective price increases. And you know, it, it seems like underpricing might feel safe. But it does have consequences. Can you talk a little bit about some of the consequences as maybe an example or two that you've encountered along the way where sort of creating that visibility into the impact of underpricing was pretty powerful when you actually bring it to light? Well, that's absolutely right. And one company comes to mind, kind of a case study in point. They're a manufacturing company that provides inputs to much bigger companies like the automotive companies. They just felt like, okay, that's such a tough pricing environment. We can never raise our prices or we're going to lose the business or the auto companies are going to go out to bid. And so they went quite a number of years where they didn't take any price increases. But meanwhile, their costs were going up. And so, you know, the profitability was just getting squeezed to the point where they were just barely in business. And then a new purchasing manager came in at one of their big customers and called them up and said, you know what? I just looked at our records. You haven't raised your prices to us in nine years. 
So your profitability obviously is through the moon if you can go nine years without a price increase. And so we're going to go out to bid because you guys are making too much money. So it was ironic, you know, they didn't dare to take any price increase and then it wound up biting them. You know, they had all that lack of profitability all that time and they still went out. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you raised a point about testing new pricing selectively, right? right? I mean, this isn't like you don't always have to just sort of apply a 3% across the board on everything, right? I worked for, you know, a global number three information services company and they were pretty unsophisticated in pricing overall. But I remember, you know, every time we do our annual plan, the board would say, well, where's your 3% across the board increase? <laughs> it's kind right. of like, that doesn't make any sense, right? What yeah. makes sense is to selectively price products based on your market, your competitors, and who you're trying to sell to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you know, Mark, I used to be a rock climber, and that's where I came up with the concept of daring caution, because obviously there's risk, even, you know, with ropes and you know, all the other equipment that climbers use, like you'll never get off the ground if you let fear inhibit you. So you have to be daring enough to do the climb. But the caution part is, you know, have the techniques, have the equipment, you know, be trained, et cetera. So you minimize the risk. So as I started to get deeper into pricing some years back, I said, man, it's the same thing. It's daring caution. You have to dare to find where you're underpricing and start rectifying that. But the caution part says, yeah, don't do an across the board price increase. That is almost certainly not the right thing to do. And, you know, there you're really taking much more risk. You need to find places where it's less risk. Now, in many cases, the least risky place is to start with the small, low potential accounts, figuring that, hey, if you lose a few of those because of your price increases, you know, the the business can live with it. And, you know, you're not going to sink the whole company if you lose a few. But I also saw a case where there was a really big customer that got very, very frustrated with my client company's pricing method and their pricing levels. And they were on the verge of walking away like this relationship was about to end. And so that actually was the least risky place to take action was with one of their biggest customers because they were about to get fired anyway. So we developed a very different pricing structure that took account of where the value was the greatest, took account of what mattered to the customer. And the new pricing structure worked out better for both companies and our client company retained most of the business. Good example. Well, so far in this program, we've kind of encouraged people, first of all, have a pricing strategy, but to base it on the value that they create. And you've been pretty encouraging about how to do this without feeling like you're sort of betting the whole enterprise on a price increase. Since the goal of this show is to bring practical guidance, I'd like to ask Bob a few questions on how one can build their pricing credentials, focusing on those areas that we talked about before break. Bob, assuming that pricing expertise is not something everyone is born with, and I think most of us would say, well, that's kind of a layup, right? We would all agree with that. How can executives build their capabilities and knowledge? There's several ways that people can do it. One, of course, is through books. And, you know, at the end, I'm going to offer a few specific titles that I think are going to be very helpful to companies of any size, of any nature. Webinars, conferences. If your company does standardized products and standardized prices and, you know, and you do lots of transactions, There's an organization called the Professional Pricing Society. Most of the companies that are in are larger companies. 
Not all, but what they tend to have in common is that they've got lots and lots of transactions and so on. So pricingsociety.com is the web address for the organization. They run conferences, you know, they do certified pricing, professional programs, et cetera. So I would say, you know, webinars and conferences, there's some videos on YouTube. I'll suggest some specific books at the end. The resources in the introduction to this program, you'll note kind of the pricing Bible that Bob wrote, which is called Daring Caution, the Executive's Guide to Pricing Improvement. You can find it on Amazon and other online bookstores, but it's it's definitely a good foundation for this whole conversation about strategic pricing. So you do a lot of teaching on Mm -hmm. the daring and caution kind of approach, right? Right. I mean, you talked a little bit how you came up with that from your rock climbing days, but tell us a little bit more about why do you think, I mean, some companies seem to just be so fearful about this. Talk a little bit more about that, if you might. Yeah. So from that concept of daring caution that you have to dare to get better, but the caution piece is find the places where pricing moves give you some upside with the smallest amount of risk. That fear factor, as I worked with colleagues, you know, in in my corporate career, and then as I've worked with companies as clients, I realized that we needed a framework, which I came to call the daring caution pricing profile that could help companies reach a better pricing decision. And it's funny, a lot of times companies, what they want to go to is what's the right price. And where I encourage people to start in the spirit of daring caution is to focus on the pricing process, the process by which you develop strategies and you reach decisions about price. And the daring caution pricing profile says, look, let's consider four factors in determining our pricing strategy and in determining a set of pricing levels for whatever the product services solution might be. And you teed it up at the beginning, there's so few companies that are explicitly considering the value to the customer of what they offer. And you have to think a lot about that and say, okay, if we are providing a service to the customer, how does that fit in their business? We're an input into their success equation If we're doing not only well, but we're doing better than somebody else could do, that's going to build a lot of preference. Try and quantify how is it making a difference in the customer's business? Is what we're providing to them, does it help them grow revenue? You know, either like unit volume or maybe we help them parts suppliers, for instance, you know, they supply parts to OEMs of tractors, let's say. Does that component, because of its quality and reliability, Does that put the customer in a position to even charge a premium for their equipment? You know, all those things. So what are the things we're doing that could potentially increase, you know, and support and and maintain the customer's revenue? That'd be a piece. What are the things that we do that help them either reduce operating expenses, you know, reduce fixed cost, maybe reduce the assets in the business? I mean, sometimes, you know, working with distributor clients or manufacturer clients, they get so good at just in time to their suppliers that their customers don't need to carry near as much inventory anymore. And that doesn't have to be financed on the balance sheet. So if you think about the ways that you can affect the customer's income statement, you know, either through the price and volume and the cost of operation, or you can influence their balance sheet, take account of all that value. So that's factor number one in the daring caution pricing profile is what's the value to the customer. And I mean, that's, a, that's sort of the downstream impacts of 
pricing, right? And the more yeah. strategic impacts of it. You know, I also yeah. think there's an old marketing axiom that, you know, if you ask a company what's important to your customers, they'll get the list right, but they'll get the order wrong. Right. right. If you say, okay, here are 10 buyer attributes, right? Yeah. That we think might be important to you. And you make your own list of one to 10 in priority order. Then you actually go out and survey customers, you know, yeah. their number one may often not be your number one. I've seen this happen a yeah. lot where, you know, manufacturers think, uh, delivery time is so important, right? Right. And then you actually do the survey and it's like, sure, it's in the top five. It may not be number one though. I mean, right. maybe quality is, right? Maybe the fact yeah. that you can do something custom for them is much yeah. more important than how quickly they get it. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And price usually tends to be further down the list than we think it is. So again, I'll reinforce what you said. It's like, what effect are we having on the customer's business? It's, it's easy to get so focused on a product at a price or a service at a price. But there's an executive that I ran across a number of years ago that says, if we are selling a product at a price, we're easy to beat. If we're giving the customer value for their money, now that is the basis on which you want to sell. So that whole customer value piece, that is such a crucial part of a decision framework. And then the other factor that affects the prices at which customers are willing to buy is what are the prices of their alternatives? If you've got you know, directly competitive products or services, then sure, the com competitive prices will be a point of reference you know, in the customer's decision. Sometimes it's a substitute, you know, they can go with an entirely different solution that's outside your category. So the value of the customer and the price of their alternatives, if you explicitly think about those two things, then you're going to reach better decisions about the prices at which customers are willing to buy. And then that leads to more factors, which is the prices at which we on the company side, the supplier side would be willing to sell. Yeah. You're arguing to take an outside-in view, right, of value. But I think a lot of times companies start with sort of an inside-out view where they're like, okay, well, what does this cost us? We can either do cost plus or we can add some standard margin on top or whatever. And it's a methodology, but it's sort of lacking all the intelligence of the outside-in knowledge of what yeah. customers really value. You're absolutely right. It's all internally focused. And it's easy to fall into that cost plus thing because we know our costs, or we should. You know, sometimes maybe there's some work to be done from a cost accounting standpoint, but it seems so squishy, or boy, how would we possibly figure out what it's worth to the customer? You know, we know our cost and so on. And hey, our cost, you know, plus our target margin, that is a crucial input to the prices at which we're willing to sell, no question, you know, and that's the third factor in the daring caution pricing profile. And then the fourth one, which is where the fear factor comes in, is our concern with volume or concern about maybe losing a customer. And the prices at which we offer to sell, that does send a signal to the marketplace that says, hey, if you buy it at this price, we're happy with it. You know, we may not be ecstatic, but, you know, we're okay with it. And Unless a company was in a market where there truly is a market price, it's commodity, and then you can decide to sell at the market price or not, you know, well, okay, that's different. But the vast majority of companies, particularly the ones that, you know, that we often work with, they're not taking a market price for granted. They can set an offer to sell price and then through some negotiation arrive at the final sell price. 
And so it is legit to think about, hey, if we don't get this customer, will we meet our volume objectives and our profit objectives for the year? And then you can weigh and decide that. And if you feel like, hey, we've got a really strong pipeline, then you can dare to take a little bit more risk than when you have a weak pipeline. Yeah. So yeah. by building this four-factor framework of value to the customer compared to you know the prices of their alternatives, and then to think about our cost and margin and our concern with volume, now managements can have a discussion about where should we be. And then with all of their market knowledge, they'll reach a more informed decision. They'll go test it. And then, you know, over time, and there's certainly analytics and things that we can do on pricing. Don't get me wrong, but having that framework for informed decisions with lots of discussion, it produces better pricing outcomes. Yeah, and you know, we like to do case studies on this program or little sort of mini profiles of examples. I think a case study or two would be great to sort of help provide some sort of grounding in the strategies that you've talked about. I recall in the early days of PC software, where I was a CMO, we actually had financial accounting suite of software for small businesses. And, you know, there, there were no reference points. I mean, there were lots of competitors, but, you know, it was sort of like none of us really knew what we were doing. We were all fairly young in our careers. And there was no market that existed before. And so it's like, I, I remember had a general ledger and an inventory, a payroll accounts, receivable accounts, payable module, you know, we started selling them at like $395 a piece. And then it's kind of like, well, next year it was, let's try 495. Right. Right. And then the third, and then the third year, was like, let's try 595. And some of them we actually pushed up as high as, you know, $895. And that was great because, you know, we had like six or seven years, 100% year over year revenue improvements, largely driven by price increases. And of course, it didn't hurt the bottom line at all to continue to drive that sort of substantial year over year. Competitors actually followed us up, which is pretty interesting, right? Somebody yeah. has to be a price leader often. And that you're right. And if you're visible, competitors see you as a price leader rather than head the other direction you know, they'll just follow you up, in which case everybody makes more money and that's okay too. But, you know, I, I learned one thing when we got too high, it actually created a market opportunity for somebody to come in very low in the marketplace, even right. under a hundred dollar price point. And because we'd all sort of migrated so far up that it just created a position in the market for somebody who wanted to be more of a, a reset the entry level expectations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. How about a yeah, case so, study where you've seen sort of, you know, good progress and maybe uh, consequences that weren't anticipated? Do you have anything you'd like to share? Yeah, here's one. It's a case, and I think it's broadly applicable because, Mark, as you know, there are a lot of organizations that delegate pricing decisions to their sales force. In part, I think that's because at the central management, their team like, oh, I don't know, you know, these guys are out in the marketplace, these guys and gals, let's let them set it. And that tends not to be a best practice. So I've seen this in repetitive companies where they delegate the pricing decision to the sales team. And we dug in, one company had a structure like the, the inside sales force could reduce prices by 5%. The outside sales force could reduce by 10% and then on up the chain. Well, the company had nine points of pre-tax operating income. And these customer service agents, man, I'd love them in my company. They were 
customer focused, they were dedicated, they were skilled, they were absolutely terrific, but nobody ever taught them about pricing. And they were given 5% pricing authority. And so interviewed a number of them and said, okay, when do you give the price concession and by how much? And they said, well, we give the 5% to our best customers. And I said, well, when do you do that for our best customers? And they looked at me like, well, what are you talking about? It's like any order for our best customers. So they're giving away more than half of the operating profit that the company has because they were given the authority to do it and they didn't know that you know, that was actually the reason why the pay raises weren't as great and why they weren't having as many resources in the company and they couldn't invest in new products and so on. So the good news is when we stopped that, that was part of achieving two points of gross margin improvement within a couple of years. And the other piece of the equation and achieving that result was to understand that sometimes the product price that might be more visible. Sometimes, as you know, Mark, there's terms and conditions, you know, of sale, like, you know, do you give free delivery or do you charge for delivery? And, you know, do you give a discount for payment within 30 days and so on? And those other factors that are near price, sometimes those are the easiest places to affect rather than the product price. So anyway, that case study was, I think, broadly applicable because many companies do delegate price decisions to the sales team, not a best practice, and they ignore the near price decisions that they've taken for granted for a long time. Yeah. Well, Bob, you know, we've covered a lot of ground in 30 minutes here. Is there anything you think we've missed or you want to just highlight as a takeaway for the audience? I do, Mark. I would say the number one thing is think deeply about the value that you provide to your customers. Here's a thought question. Ask yourself, if all of a sudden our company ceased to be, like all of a sudden we're not there, would our customers just shrug and say, yeah, no big deal, plenty of other companies we can call? And if that's the case, you don't have a pricing issue, you got a value issue and finding ways to create more value for customers would be the number one challenge. But if on the other hand, if your customers really depend on you, and if you all of a sudden weren't there, they'd be, oh man, we got a heck of a problem because you are part of their success equation, then you're providing real value and ask yourself, hey, are we pricing to get paid for that value? And where might we find some opportunities that will allow us to get paid better? Because it's going to sound like the old uh, hair color commercial, we're worth it. I don't know how old that commercial was, but you are worth it, right? I mean, that's the essence of focusing on this part of your business. So, yeah. hey, thanks for joining me today, Bob. If people want to follow up with you directly, we've got your chief outsider's email in the introduction to the program on the website. You've got your LinkedIn profile as well. I got to tell you, when I went out on Amazon to get the copyright date for Bob's book, Daring Caution, Executive's Guide to Pricing Improvement, it popped up in search just ahead of former President Obama's new memoir. So I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, it just, I just thought that was interesting, right? It's like you actually showed up ahead of our former president's new memoir. Of course, I don't know, I guess that's got, what, eight, 900 pages, something like that. So yeah. I think people will get a lot more value from reading <laughs> Daring Caution. Yeah, and I promise that, that mine is a lot more succinct and, you know, and, and I appreciate the mention of it. There's two more books that I promised titles for. If we have time, I'll mention those real quick. 
Yeah, you can do that. And then we'll also put them in the lead in here so people okay, can track great. them down. There's a couple of guys I know over in the UK, Harry McDivitt and Mike Wilkinson, who wrote a book called Value-Based Pricing. It's pretty good. And that's well worth people taking a look at. And then there's a slightly more academic book, but it's one that stood the test of time. It's a guy named Thomas Nagel, N-A-G-L-E, The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. And he's had a couple of co-authors as he's updated the book over the years. But those are a couple more that I think people would find worthwhile. Well, thanks. Thank you for those references. We'll make sure that people can find them easily. But I think that you got to start with Bob's book. I think Bob's book is a great first read on this and kind of gets the model set for you to allow you to really take it and start to build your expertise around it. So, hey, thanks, everybody, for sitting in with us. Thanks again, Bob. And we'll look forward to having you on a future episode of The Practical CMOs. Mark Corona signing out. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.